COVID-19 spread across the country and the globe in the spring and summer, glimmers of hope began to emerge. Cases were down and the death rate was falling. Americans began to hope the pandemic was subsiding, that vaccines would soon be available, and that life as we knew it might return. Predictably, this turned out to be a false dawn. As people living in the Northern Hemisphere began to move their lives indoors, infections, hospitalizations, and deaths have spiked. Winter is coming, and COVID is once again accelerating, and this time leaving no corner of the country or the planet untouched. While COVID health concerns are top of mind, there's growing evidence that another wave of economic impacts is on its way at home and abroad. To discuss what he calls the coming dark economic winter, I'm joined today by Desmond Lockman, a resident fellow at AEI who focuses on international finance and trade and monetary policy. We discuss his recent article in the Hill newspaper on what our world's collective economic future may look like in light of rising debt levels brought on by loose monetary policies and how those effects are likely to be felt most strongly in the developing world. Desmond Lockman, thank you for joining us here on Hardly Working. Really great to have you. Um, you have uh, you've been at AEI for a while, and you're one of our um, senior finance guys and economists uh, at the at AEI. And um, I wonder if you could just walk us through a little bit of um, your own personal background, um, your career leading up to AEI, how you chose your field. Uh, or did your field choose you, that kind of thing? Uh, well, I'd say that I had an interest in economics. I started studying uh, law and economics. I thought I was going to do law, but I changed course. You know, that was back in South Africa, you know, during the late 60s. And then I got attracted to economics that I had a very charismatic professor came from Berlin University. It helps also that he shared the same surname as I had. And uh, he really just got me very interested in what happened in the 1930s, what happened to economics, you know, how the whole system nearly broke down. And through the idea of John Maynard Keynes, you know, things really got on the mend, you know, so that really ignited an interest. So I left South Africa, studied in England. I studied at Cambridge University, did economics there, uh, had uh, under the uh, supervision of people who had studied with Keynes. So that was rather an interesting experience. And then I had the opportunity to work at the International Monetary Fund. You know, they recruited me from England and that brought me to the United States in the early 70s. That, uh, was uh, just the place to be for an economist. You deal with 150 different countries, you know, that all got different sorts of uh, problems. Uh, so um, I spent quite a long career there. I spent something like 24 years there. And then I thought uh, after such a long stint in public service, I thought I'd go off to Wall Street, see what the real world was like, you know, look at markets. And I worked at uh, Solomon Brothers for a number of years. 
Uh, they, of course, got merged into uh, Citibank in the end, uh, but I was at Solomon when it was still Solomon Brothers, and that was rather an exciting time in terms of economics. You know, we had the Asian crisis, the Russian crisis, and so on. So uh, I haven't lost at the interest, you know, in finding out, you know, how countries work, you know, what policies can be done to remedy things. You know, that uh, living as we do in this age, there's no shortage of topics uh, that are worthy of uh, uh, studying, you know, that it's really quite uh, different, uh, quite a diverse uh, and very challenging time in which we live. Uh, and finally, I landed up, uh, you know, I came to AI uh, around about 2003, you know, and I've been doing uh, research at AI, writing a lot about the international economy uh, and uh, also the US economy and uh, anything that's got to do with uh, trade, economic growth, uh, business to do with currencies, you know, that is really uh, what my field is. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't have regrets that I chose economics as a career. So uh, I want to go back and just have you talk a little bit about your career at the IMF. What exactly did you work on or what kinds of things did you work on at the IMF? Well, um, you know, the IMF, you've got a lot of people who are working on countries. You know, what they're doing is they're going and negotiating lending programs with countries that might get themselves into trouble, you know, on the balance of payment side. They need support. They need uh, advice as to how to deal with uh, uh, their country. So I started off in the IMF working on Latin American countries. You know, mm -hmm. I worked on quite a number of them. And, um, you know, in the later stage of my career on Latin America, I used to lead the IMF uh, missions to Argentina, which always would get into some sort of currency trouble or, you know, they'd have very irresponsible budget policies. Um, and one would negotiate uh, what was called a standby arrangement with those countries, you know, where the IMF, in return for the money that it gave them, it would require that they remedied their policies you know, in a way that was in both their interest and in the international system's interest. Uh, the more exciting part of my career at the IMF was when I moved off to work on Europe and uh, I had involvement in Sweden uh, in 1992, Sweden had a major currency crisis. So this was a different uh, item, you know, for the IMF, you know, dealing with a country uh, that was advanced, you know, developed, you know, you'd think that they wouldn't get into trouble. Uh, and Especially not the Swedes, right? I mean, they're, they're sort of the paradigm of responsible governance, or at least they're understood that way. Well, you know, the Swedes always remember that they had to jack up interest rates to 500% to try to defend the currency. So, you know, that is a measure of how badly out of whack things got. Uh, I was rather surprised, you know, Sweden in 1992, I was rather surprised how they seemed to be isolated. They seemed to be on the outside of what was going on, you know, in the rest of Europe. Uh, and this crisis came as a real surprise to them. And I was surprised that, you know, an institution like the IMF had something to say to a country 
um, that is the seat of where the Nobel Prizes are given. <laughs> you know, that uh, <laughs> was a little bit odd, but that was very uh, uh, rewarding uh, experience. And then, of course, um, you know, before another- we move on, before we move on from that, I just want to ask. I mean, you talk about dealing with Argentina, which is sort of renowned for its bad economic management, budget management, and then with Sweden having its own crisis. Were those do they arise from a similar source, uh, those two crises? No, I think that uh, Argentina, uh, the crises there are deeper rooted, you know, that it's mm. a problem between their provinces and the central government, and that it's a weak central government and the provinces always manage to do their own thing. And it's not done in a very coordinated way and it becomes highly politicized. Sweden was different. Sweden was running through a period of political instability, you know, which wasn't didn't always characterize it. Sweden used to have a Labour government that always had a majority, you know, so that uh, it had very stable government. The government that I was dealing with was a coalition government, you know, that that got itself into trouble. You know, there were four parties in a coalition pulling in different directions, you know, in the end is they ran into uh, a major, uh, a major crisis. Was it a, if I recall correctly, and I may be wrong about this, but it was a question of sort of Sweden getting to the end of being able to sustain the welfare state that it had created. Was that the principal cause? That was part of it. But the other part was that uh, they, like the UK, you know, the UK got into similar trouble at around about the same time. They want to join the euro. So they fixed their currency. But what they did is they didn't have the policies to support the currency being fixed. Mm. And um, when they didn't have their budget under control, and uh, they didn't have good supervision on the banks, the whole thing came apart in a spectacular way. But, you know, the same sort of thing occurred to uh, the UK a few months before. You know, this was the famous ERM crisis in uh, 1992. You know, Sweden was a little bit further down the road, but it was the same idea that countries were trying to peg their exchange rates to get into the euro but they didn't have the policies uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, that supported it. Yeah, interesting. Okay, very, very interesting, uh, fascinating background, and it'll help, I think, um, uh, listeners to understand a bit about your um, uh, what you lay out in this um, editorial that you wrote for the Hill newspaper, and you entitled it A Dark Economic Winter. And was that a deliberate allusion to... Um, Joe Biden's discussion of the dark uh, COVID winter? Uh, well, it wasn't Joe Biden. Uh, well, Joe Biden might have been discussing it. Uh, I was looking more, uh, you know, dispassionately, you know, without getting into the politics, I was looking at what the health experts were saying, you know, that including uh, one of uh, our more famous alumni, uh, Scott Gottlieb, you know, they were warning that the United States didn't have much of a uh, COVID-19 policy to speak of, and that they were warning that as we would go into the winter months, uh, we would see this incredible spike 
in uh, cases, you know, we see spike in illnesses. And I was just making a connection between deteriorating health picture and the likelihood that that would spill over into the economy. So, you know, what we're seeing right now is uh, in Europe, you know, that Europe thought that they had this pandemic under control and now it's spiking a lot in Europe. So what you're seeing is Europe, uh, you know, countries uh, as diverse as the United Kingdom, Ireland, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, all of them are rolling back the lockdown, uh, the easing of the lockdown that they had earlier in the year. So the story uh, is, you know, both in Europe and the United States, is that we had the crisis around about the spring. We didn't know too much about this health crisis. We probably panicked. We put on too many controls too quickly uh, in order to try to uh, see to it. Uh, and what that did is it caused the greatest economic recession that we've had you know, in the past 90 years. Then what happened is that as the uh, lockdown was eased, you know, as we went into the summer months and that it looked like this was coming off, you know, so we took off restrictions, uh, what you got is you got an incredible bounce back in the economy. So you know, the numbers in the United States uh, you know, that if you look at annualized terms, uh, we declined by something like 30% in the, uh, in the uh, uh, second quarter, only to bounce back by something like 30% in the third quarter. So, you know, this looked like this was a sharp V-shaped recovery. But the point I'm making is that if we don't have the health uh, item under control, then it's very likely that we're going to have to roll back at least to some degree uh, the easing of the lockdown that made that recovery uh, so strong. And uh, I'm also arguing that even if we don't uh, roll it back, you know, if governments don't do this, you know, that uh, introduce uh, uh, restrictions, you know, the public itself will pull back, you know, so people won't be that keen to uh, travel, they won't be keen to go to restaurants, stay at hotels, you know, all of those things, sports events, all of those parts of the economy will be uh, hit. Now, what I'm arguing as well is uh, that we can ill afford this at a time that the Federal Reserve is telling us, you know, quite clearly that the data that they're looking at is indicating that after the strong bounce of the economy in the third quarter, all of the numbers are pointing to the economy slowing down. So we can't afford to take you know, another hit uh, to uh, the economy. Uh, you know, and what's bothering me right now is that if I look at the numbers, you know, the latest numbers on this COVID, it's not just a question that we're now at like 120, 130,000 cases a day. Whereas in the sum of the previous peak, we were at say 65, 70,000, you know, so we had like double where we were at the previous peak. But what really bothers me is that uh, we're growing. Uh, those cases are rising now at a fortnightly rate. So in other words, every 14 days, it increases by 50 or 60%. So, you know, I'm concerned that before 
the vaccine comes into play, you know, which we're really only expecting the vaccine to come into play uh, in a serious way by the first quarter of the year, we've now got to get through uh, the winter uh, with cases that are likely to uh, to be um, uh, very high. You know, so that that was another argument for not being complacent about where the economy is. You know, the economy clearly needs uh, some kind of support now. Uh, you know, because we really don't want this recovery to to run out of steam. Yeah, I, I think that's on everybody's mind, or at least it should be on everybody's mind um, that we're, as you pointed out, we're lagging. We've lagged Europe by three months throughout this crisis, uh, and now we're lagging them, you know, by a few weeks, probably, uh, in terms of the surge that they're that they're dealing with. And it's a very important and interesting point. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about. Um, you know, government shouldn't impose these restrictions uh, on the economy that, you know, we should just pretty much allow people to go about their business, uh, try to protect the vulnerable as much as we can, uh, not lock down. But the reality is that it isn't government that locks down, it's people who lock down. Uh, we saw that early on in the crisis in the United States. The restaurants in New York were closed long before the government moved uh, to right. shut them down. Yeah. Right. No, no. I, you know, I'd, uh, I'd buy that. You know, and that's part of my argument is that even if you don't have the rollback uh, mandated by states and so on, you know, you'd get it uh, occurring anyway. But it, it seems that, um, you know, there are countries that have been really very successful. Uh, you know, they mainly Asian countries, you know, for instance, like if you look at Taiwan, Taiwan hasn't had a case now, you know, for quite a while, or it's at an incredibly low level. You know, the same thing we're finding in Australia, the same thing we're finding in New Zealand, you know, that what they've done is they've taken this rather seriously, you know, that they've just closed off their economies, they've stopped travel, uh, you know, they've perhaps taken a hit, but that's put them in a position to now recover, you know, in a way... Um, uh, that we don't. I, you know, I, I would just think that there's some kind of uh, uh, health measures. You know, I would certainly. I, I think it was a huge mistake at the beginning to shut down uh, in an indiscriminate kind of way. You know, that uh, I think that you can do it in a way that you allow young people, you know, to go to work. You know, you have testing in place. You know, you have old people. Uh, you protect them in a different kind of way. You treat different parts of the population uh, in different ways. But you, you know, it would be a huge mistake now, you know, if we uh, uh, shut down the economy for uh, a week or two, you know, because uh, that's really got consequences. You know, that the fact, uh, you know, I, 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 we've certainly got a health crisis, but I wouldn't minimize. The fact that at one stage we had 20 million people out of work, you know, we've still got something like 11 million people out of work, uh, you know, businesses are getting disrupted, you know, there's a huge amount of stress, you know, there are other illnesses uh, that uh, um, take place. So, you know, the economy, uh, uh, you know, one really, one really doesn't want to let the health officials, you know, run away with this uh, you know, that they'd want to shut everything down. You know, I think you've really got to try to get the right balance. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And the way I've always thought about this is, 
that if you have all of the other things, if you have social distancing and masking policies and testing and uh, the panoply of tools in place, you can manage it. What happens if you don't have those things is that you're stuck with a shutdown because that becomes the only tool that you've got. And I think that that that's where we got stuck earlier this year is that the thing was out of control before we knew it was there. We had to, um, you, you called it panicking. I might say it was kind of the, the only tool in the bag to try to, to try to get ahead of it. Uh, but I agree that at this point, it doesn't really, it doesn't really make sense to think about, you know, statewide nationwide kinds of lockdowns we really we have much better tools at hand that we can use to manage this if we choose to and then you look at states you know in the mid in the upper midwest right now where they just uh they haven't managed the crisis at all um you know uh, up until now and now they're really paying a price in places like the dakotas and wisconsin and um some other states that just never took this seriously. And now that it's, it's endemic uh, in the community, you can't get away from it. Yeah, well, you know, I guess the good news is the vaccine, you know, yeah. that if somehow we can hold out till, uh, till March, April, uh, you know, we should be in a good place. You know, I think that what's changed uh, the last few days is that uh, it looks like there's an end in sight you know, which makes this a lot more tolerable. You know, perhaps people will um, take a different attitude, you know, that uh, this is not going to be something permanent, you know, so you perhaps they reduce the risks that, uh, uh, that they're taking. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it, it does feel like, okay, if we can just get past the first of the year, uh, the vaccine will start coming online, we'll be able to actually protect the vulnerable populations the way that we say that we want to. That opens up a whole lot of uh, a whole, much better choices for the country. If we can say to the elderly, we're going to protect you. If we can say to our healthcare workers, you know, we're going to be able to immunize you so that you don't have to worry about getting sick yourself. All of that will begin to take the pressure, I think, off the, off the uh off the healthcare system and, and off public psychology, um, which is a big part of the battle, I think. So we've been talking a lot about the US side of this, um, but this is a, a global phenomenon and it, and it doesn't, and it occurs in both dimensions, um, both the public health dimension and the economic dimension kind of around the world. So why don't you take us through that a little bit um, particularly the concerns that you outlined in your piece about uh, the emerging market debt crisis, um, which I found, which I found fascinating and had not connected to um, COVID before I read your piece. Right. Well, you know, there are two things that are going on. It seems uh, with, when you look at the emerging markets, you know, one is the impact of this COVID crisis. So as far as the emerging markets are concerned, many of them have been faced with, you know, what one would call a perfect economic storm. They're the disruptions that come directly from the COVID itself. But then as soon as the global economy slows, these countries find that their commodity prices, global commodity prices drop, you know, just think of oil, 
they're not earning uh, money from that. Workers abroad don't send back the same amounts of money that they did before, that the economies like the US and Europe, as they slow down, their markets slow. So, you know, from the emerging markets point of view, they really get hit very hard. And they went into this crisis uh, in rather poor shape, you know, so they went into this crisis with a lot of debt to begin with. Now they get thrown into a massive recession, which means that their budgets go out of kilter, you know, both because as they get depressed, they don't collect the tax revenues, but then also because they're spending money on health, you know, to try to protect their populations. So if their public finances look shaky before, they're now beyond the pale. That is the one part that is going on. The other part that is going on is because the Federal Reserve responded the way in which the Federal Reserve did by cutting interest rates again like crazy to 0%, and then by expanding its balance sheet by $3 trillion, I, I, I just stress it's not billion, it's $3 trillion. They did that in the space of five months. So what's happened is that once again, it's like what occurred after 2008, 2009, the global economy is swimming with liquidity. Interest rates are very low. And in that kind of environment, investors are looking for something that is uh, returning them some kind of yield. And they're not, they're not really asking question, is this a viable proposition in a year or two? You know, so the money is flowing back into these emerging market countries you know, and masking the underlying rot that is going on. But, you know, at some point when the music stops, uh, we're really going to have uh, debt crises. And it's so not... let me ask you, what do you mean by the underlying rot? Well, the underlying rot is that the public finances uh, are just not uh, stable. You know, so to give you an example, Brazil went into the crisis with a debt to GDP ratio of 80%. That is very high for an emerging market economy. It's already at the threshold where you're seeing red flags. Comes the crisis, their budget deficit blows out to something like 17% of GDP, the economy dives. So this ratio suddenly goes to 100% of GDP and is off to the races because their deficit's not gonna come down anytime soon. So that is a situation where normally what you'd say is, this country is not going to be able to pay its debt. It needs to restructure its debt. It needs to get better control of its public finances. It needs an IMF program to put it back on the rails. No, what's going on is because the money is flowing so freely globally, uh, Brazil is able to finance this deficit. So as soon as the interest rates in the United States start rising, or as soon as there's some event in the world that makes people think, hey, wait a minute, we can lose all of our money if we're lending to these deadbeat kind of countries. Uh, that's when you'll get the debt crisis. And this is a view, uh, you know, I've certainly got that view, but it's also a view uh, which I find interesting is that that seems to be the World Bank's baseline view. You know, the World Bank is warning that, uh, you know, we've really got big debt problems, uh, you know, whether it's in a year or whether it's in two years time, uh, this is certainly not a viable proposition. And what's important to bear in mind is that 
the emerging market countries aren't what they were 20 years ago. Now they're half the global economy. You know, so mm-hmm. if you get problems in a number of these large emerging, country, emerging market countries, uh, that can spill over you know, to us. So you know, I'm just suggesting that that is another reason why uh, we really can't be too complacent about the U.S. economy slowing, you know, because the U.S. economy, there might be one or two shocks coming from abroad uh, that derail the um, the U.S. recovery. So, so let's play this out just a little bit. Uh, so we talked already talked about the vaccine coming online. Uh, the markets in the United States rebounded strongly on that news. Um, Twelve hundred points on the on the stock exchange. And uh, I believe uh, yields on treasuries started to rise. Uh, so as as the US outlook improves, that would tend to drive up interest rates, not just here, but in Brazil or Argentina or um, you know wherever uh, in the developing world and the emerging markets. Is that right? Is that, is that how this works? Yeah, that's one way in which this can work. And, you know, that we had that experience in the emerging markets in 2013, you know, when Ben Bernanke uh, mentioned uh, that he was thinking of the term they used was normalizing U.S. monetary policy, which basically meant begin to run down their balance sheets, you know, to reduce the size of their balance sheet, to begin raising interest rates. And that gave rise to what was known as the Bernanke tantrum, you know, that the markets had this temper tantrum uh, because Bernanke dared as much as to say that he might raise interest rates, you know, so the money went flowing out of the emerging market countries and, you know, a lot of them really got into trouble. And if I recall, Bernanke had to back off, uh, you know, what he was planning to do. But that's essentially the point. So, you know, that one way you can uh, think of the scenario playing out, I mean, this is less likely now that uh, we've got an election result where uh, there's a split between the administration and uh, Congress, you know, the fact that the Republicans will control the Senate, that makes this less likely. But, you know, what you could do is if you have a very expansive fiscal policy, that can force the interest rates up a lot sooner, you know, than we're thinking about. But that would be the way in which the music stopped. You know, and that we've seen that uh, a number of, uh, you know, I've seen that too many times, you know, for it not to be occurring. So, you know, I'm saying that this is all fine, you know, that the easy money papers over uh, the um, uh, the ready bad allocation of capital, you know, the uh, just allowing countries, you know, to go on in their way. But at some point when that stops, we get the disruption. Now, the trouble with the disruption is that can have an impact on United States financial markets. You know, we saw that with the Asian crisis, we saw it with the Russian debt default, you know, you then find that somebody, some financial institution, in its wisdom, you know, got over its head lending to this particular country, and then, uh, you know, they need a bailout. Uh, you know, that's that's really at the risk. So the uh, 
it's it's like even the good news is bad news is what i'm hearing you say i mean like in, it, you know we develop the vaccine we get the vaccine in place the uh uh the the economy uh you know confidence is restored people are able to get back uh to work and producing that's all good but there's a huge price tag to be paid um probably both domestically, but especially internationally um, for, for what we've had to do um, to write out this, um, to write out this problem. Yeah, well, you know, internationally, uh, while we were printing the money, that was good for them. As soon as we start taking the money out, you know, that's going to show right. how artificial was now you know an important point with the vaccine uh you know when you look at the international uh economy the news that we got uh this week on the vaccine is terrific news for the united states but for the rest of the world it's not that great you know because what seems to be occurring is that the united states is going to make sure that every united states citizen gets the right to have the vaccine but the vaccines aren't going to be available uh, to the rest of the world, you know, so these countries, you know, that, uh, you know, and I'm thinking right now of Europe, Europe, you know, forget about the emerging market economies, Europe itself is going to be way behind the United States as to when they get uh, the vaccine. So while the vaccine is going to be good for the United States uh, in the near term, it's only going to be good for these countries uh, further down the pike. So they've got a long time uh, that they still going to have to deal with, uh, um, they're going to have to deal with this pandemic. And if their economies take a hit, uh, you know, another hit, that can really be uh, problematic um, for the United States because the debt problem isn't only an emerging market problem. The debt problem is, uh, you know, that if I look at countries like in Europe, country like Italy has never had debt at these sort of levels and their public finances have never looked this bad, you know, so that's not a very sustainable situation. You know, they have to get their economies growing very quickly, you know, if they're not going to run into another debt crisis themselves. Yeah, I think that's a really good word. I mean, <clears throat> the way that uh, the administration set up the vaccine development was, you know, U.S. first, um, and that's completely understandable from a, you know, political, even a public health standpoint. Uh, but we are intimately connected to all these other nations um, and our, our fate is bound up in, in theirs as well. So we've got to figure out how to start um, sharing the wealth, as it were, related to the vaccine uh, not for their good, although it is good for them, but for in our own interests um, to make sure that they don't experience the kind of lag you're talking about. So Desmond, if you were then uh, in charge of uh, policy at this point, what are the two or three things that you would be telling both the US and um, U.S., the Europeans, the emerging markets, what would you be recommending to them in terms of uh, immediate policy to, uh, to manage what sounds like is going to be a very difficult transition back to something closer to normal? Well, I guess, you know, the two things would be, you know, to have a sensible health policy, you know, what we've been discussing, you know, not one of these blankets, lockdowns, 
you know, to have something that is more uh, targeted, you know, that makes use of testing, tracing, uh, and the like, you know, to keep the health problem under control, at least until we've got uh, the vaccine in place. And then I would say, you know, certainly for the United States, you know, and that would also be true for Europe, is that there's need for more fiscal support to the economy. You know, so one of the mistakes that we keep making or that we made, in my view, in 2008, is we don't do enough on the budget side and we leave all of the heavy lifting to be done by monetary policy. And then what occurs with monetary policy, monetary policy can do it, but it can only do it at a cost of distorting all of these capital markets. So what it does is it solves a problem in the near term, but by building a very big problem down the road. So you know, I'd want to see a better balance. I'd want to see less of the effort to get recovery going being placed on Congress on the budget and uh, uh, less on the um, Federal Reserve. So more more on Congress, less on the Federal Reserve. You said less on Congress. I just wanted to no, more, no, more on Congress, less on the Federal Reserve. But at the same time, you know what I think uh, we've really got to be careful about, you know, and I seem to be the only person talking about it anymore is we've really got to worry about our debt. You know, what happens to our debt is going to come back and bite us later on. You know, so this notion that seems to be in vogue right now is if interest rates are low, budget deficits don't matter, the public debt doesn't matter. You know, I think that's baloney. You know, that is really going to catch us later on. So, you know, my advice would be that in terms of fiscal policy, you certainly need fiscal policy support but you need to do it in a way that minimizes the amount of debt you build up in the process. So what you need to do is look at uh, the expenditure side, things that give you bang, a lot of bang for the buck. Those are the kind of things that you should do, but you shouldn't do what we did in uh, this CARES Act. Uh, you know, I haven't analyzed it that carefully, but it just looks so wasteful in so many ways. You know, you gave loans to people to keep on workers they were going to be keeping them on anyway you know so why you know kind of like a few hundred billion dollars here and a few hundred billion dollars there you know what we've done is we've built up the debt in a way that i think mortgages our future you know so i i would i'm a big proponent of providing the economy with support uh, but not happily throwing around numbers like $2 trillion, $3 trillion, you know, as if it kind of doesn't really make a difference. We're, somebody's going to have to pay for that in the end. Uh, you know, I think we've really got to be uh, uh, very much more disciplined and very much more careful, you know, in how we go about fiscal. So am, am I hearing you say you weren't a, fran a fan of the PPE or the, yeah. The CARES Act. The, the CARES Act, but the segment of that funding that went to businesses yeah that it should have it should have been targeted you know that you should there has to have been a better way of doing this than just in a blanket way um you know and providing wasteful kind of stuff you know people getting those loans who don't really need them you know and people who need them aren't really getting them you know, yeah it doesn't make sense you know i think that you're really wanting to target your um 
your fiscal response, you know, as I say, in a way that does the job of getting the economy going, but doesn't have a lot of wasteful elements uh, to it. What, I mean, what do you what do you make of the uh, the expanded unemployment insurance um, for workers? The, the $600 a week and the, you know, the sort of the federal supplement to state unemployment benefits. So, you know, there you can, uh, you know, one can argue that there are uh, disincentives, you know, that one's seen that the disincentives, you know, that if people are earning more uh, by staying unemployed than going to employment, that creates a problem later on, you know, getting people back into the workforce, but you know, I'd be more of a fan of um, you know what seemed to be you know like Milton Friedman's helicopter money, you know, giving families you know in need, you know, giving them the money to spend. You know, you don't have a disincentive, you know, for them mm -hmm. to to mm -hmm. go to work. You know, right. I, I mean, one really needs to look at it um, uh, and look at this rather carefully, uh, but you know. I'd realize that this is very optimistic that this is going to be done in a uh, political way. Uh, you know, it's the same thing. You know, we saw that in 2000 and, uh, uh, you know, with the uh, Obama uh, 2009 Recovery Act. Recovery yeah. Act. You know, it was the same thing. There was just a whole lot of pork in it, uh, you know, which, you know, is really, um, we're not in a position. You know, one of the things, uh, with the United States is even before the pandemic occurred, our public finances weren't in good shape, you know, so it just looks, I'm worried about, um, you know, from a longer run point of view in um, uh, Washington is there seems to be no constituency for sound public finances, you know, that that seems to have gone out of the window, you know, the Republicans, uh, the uh, four years with uh, uh, President Trump, you know, that there was in my view, there was absolutely no excuse for having fiscal stimulus uh, at a time that the economy was strong. You know, that was the time that you should have been uh, fixing your public uh, finances. It's not, I'm not saying that I'm against a tax cut, far from it. But if the tax cut is unfunded, I'm against mm -hmm. that. You know, just happily building up debt is not mm -hmm. the way to go. Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, just, you know, you've helped me to understand something about the way that monetary policy is another, it's another, um, uh, it's another way of doing that, of shifting the burden um, down the road or to other people, um, you know, with the way, the way the monetary policy has been handled, it's actually the developing world that's going to pay for our loose money uh, you know, or they're going to pay the biggest price. We'll all pay, but uh, they're going to pay the biggest price for our loose money policies, uh, yeah, which I hadn't it, really thought about. But it's, uh, you know, it's not, you know, the emerging markets is just one aspect of how Federal Reserve money has distorted credit markets. So, you know, you get countries that, uh, you know, shouldn't have borrowed in the first place. A lot of these African countries should never have been in the capital markets in the first place. They weren't credit worthy, but they got the money, you know, because of easy Fed policy. But you've got stuff domestically 
as well. You know, so you've got you know Janet Yellen uh, worries about you know she worries now. She didn't worry when she was in office, uh, but she's worried now about how Fed easy money policy has led to loans by companies that are highly leveraged uh, with bad quality. You know, these are the highly leveraged loans. We've got something like one and a half trillion dollars of these loans that have been made to companies that as soon as you get into a recession of any sort, these companies are all going to default. You know, so it's the whole system is mm-hmm. filled with, mm-hmm. at least my view is filled with, um, you know, very bad loans uh, that will then weigh down on future growth at a later stage. Well, that is uh, very reminiscent of 2008, 2009, isn't it? The, uh, the bad loans coming, coming due. Desmond, this has been a fascinating conversation. If people are interested in reading more of your work, where should they go? Uh, if they go to the website at AI, you know, they just uh, go to the AI website, you know, bring me down as the scholar or just go directly to my page. You know, they can Google me. They find, uh, you know, I'm finding I'm writing uh, a fair bit now because, as I say, uh, you know, every time I think I've run out of anything to say, you know, I just see there's a new problem. Right. That's what we're there for, right, is to uh, worry about problems. That's what I think think tanks are for. Um, so it's been great talking with you. Thank you, thank you so much for writing the piece. I, th- I found it was I thought it was fascinating. We'll make sure that we get it out to our listeners and um, encourage everybody to go to the website. Are you on Twitter by chance? Uh, Twitter, you know, I belong to the wrong generation. Ah, okay, okay. No, no, no need to uh, no need to go any further. I just wanted to make sure if you have if you were there and you were tweeting, you want to be able to follow you there too as well. So thanks so much for your time and uh, we'll have you back again um, to talk more about economics and labor markets and, uh, and the economy. Well, very good to talk to you and thanks for inviting me. You bet. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.